Good evening. How are y'all doing? You're dry in here, right? <laughs> How dry I am. Thankful for roofs. Thank you all for coming tonight. And I hope you all receive a blessing from our time of study and prayer tonight. Uh, let's bow and pray and ask the Lord to bless our time this evening. Father in heaven, we come before you tonight as your people redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And we thank you for what Christ has done for us in his perfect life of righteousness, his atoning death on the cross of Calvary, and his triumphant resurrection from the grave. We thank you that he now lives as our great high priest, where he ever makes intercession for us at your right hand. Lord, bless our time of study tonight. We pray that we would learn more about how you desire uh, to draw us near as priests of the living God and how we might relate to you as uh, your priests and how we might represent you to the world. Lord, bless our time. I pray that you would help us as we pray tonight, that uh, we would do so uh, with regard to your will and your glory. And so, Father, honor your name tonight. We pray through Christ our Savior. Amen. Tonight, uh, we're going to be looking at, hopefully, chapters 18, 19, and 20. And the reason I'm trying to take three is because this finishes out the section which uh, the last many chapters here in the middle of the book has been about Israel's story. And so we started with the Garden of Eden, kind of that initial picture of God dwelling with his people and how Adam and Eve were really uh, inhabitants of an ancient tabernacle, if you will, in the Garden of Eden with God's presence there. But then how that was marred by their sin and then Really, from that point forward, God is redeeming a people. He's redeeming a people. He's drawing them near. He is cleansing them and he is making them holy and drawing them into his presence. And so the last many chapters, we've been looking at Israel's story and how uh, the priests of Israel, beginning really with Moses and then Aaron and the Levitical priesthood, how it symbolizes and represents uh, what Christ would eventually accomplish in his life, death, and resurrection, but then also the role that we would play in Christ drawing us into himself near to God. And so tonight finishes that uh, Israel chapter of the priestly story, if you will. And so we're looking at chapter 18, which is on the theme of holiness and God's desire to make us holy. He begins the chapter by reminding us that really everything about God is holy. If, if there is, my theology teacher in seminary argued that if there is one defining kind of governing attribute of God that um, assumes all of the others within it, it is holiness. It is the only attribute of God that is threefold spoken as it is in Isaiah chapter six, verse three, in this calling of Isaiah, the prophet, and he sees this vision of God in the temple and the angels calling out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he says, really, everything about God is holy. Every other attribute of God, we could say is holy. His justice is holy. His love is holy. 
every aspect of God is holy. And really what we've been studying in this book is God's inherent holiness, intrinsic holiness, that he is expanding outward to his creation and drawing his creation near to him, specifically those whom he is redeeming and making holy. And so he is drawing us in to be holy as he is holy. And so several times in the Pentateuch, in the law of God, we see phrases like Leviticus 19 verse 2. Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And there are several other verses that he mentioned in this chapter that say essentially the same thing. God is holy and he is calling his people that he has redeemed out of slavery in Egypt. He is calling them to be holy as he is holy. Likewise, Peter says in the New Testament, quoting this same passage, that we are to be holy as God is holy as new covenant Christians. And he says, really, the way in which we be holy as God is holy is through obedience, through following his righteous commands and his character. But he says, obedience really is a means to an end. So we, we are drawn closer to God in holiness. And the way that we are holy is by obeying his commands. The end goal of that obedience and becoming holy is not an end in itself, but it is for the purpose of our communion with him. So he makes uh, this statement. Sometimes we refer to our becoming holy as progressive sanctification. That is a, a theological term that we talk about in the Christian life where we are justified at the moment of our salvation, at the moment of our regeneration. We're justified, we're declared not guilty, declared righteous. But really from that moment of God transforming us, giving us a new heart, opening our eyes of faith, from that point of the new birth, really on into glory, we are in a progressive, a growing state of becoming Leviticus 19 verse two, be holy as I am holy. So we're in a, a progressive state of becoming more and more holy. That's what sanctification is. So progressive sanctification, but he suggests another way to think of it is as progressive nearness. That the more that we follow God and his word and more become more like his character, the closer we are drawn to him in fellowship and relationship. So sin separates, but holiness draws us close. And he gives this quote in the chapter. He says, sin separates even after we are made holy. When we turn from sin, we turn back to the light and life and we experience fellowship with a clear conscience. Even in Christ, in the Christian life, sin can get in the way of our fellowship with God, or at least the experience of that fellowship with God. And so as we grow in holiness, we're also growing in nearness to God and fellowship with him. He didn't really say it this way in the chapter, but I had the thought that 
if there's ever times in your life when you feel distant from God, I think we have to ask ourselves, is there sin in my life that is making me feel that distance from God? Now, may not be so. There may be other things going on, difficulties, trials, etc., that are working in our lives, but we should at least ask the question that if I feel far away from God, maybe there's a reason why I feel far away from God. It's because I'm not walking in his ways. I'm not seeking to be holy as he is holy. I'm not seeking to draw near to him through his word. And so we have been called not only to be holy, but to draw near through holiness. And so in 1 Peter 2.9, Peter says, but you are a chosen people. And, and in this verse, Peter is specifically drawing on Old Testament language. He's drawing on Exodus 19 and 20 language where Israel meets God at Mount Sinai. And he's saying of the church now of Jesus Christ, we are a chosen people. We are a royal priesthood. The same thing that God said of Israel in Exodus 19. We are now that royal priesthood. We are the holy nation. We are God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And there's that idea of nearness is that we're being called out of darkness, out of the sin that separates and we're being called into the holiness of light that draws us near. We are the royal priesthood of God. And then in 2 Peter 1 verse 4, he says, Through these, God has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. That's a remarkable statement that Peter makes there, that, that through the, the power, the grace, the calling that God has placed in our lives, he is actually calling us to participate in his divine nature. Not that we can be infinite as God is infinite, but that we can be like him in his righteous nature as we are holy as he is holy. That's why he says, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. And so as we set ourselves apart from the world and set ourselves unto God in holiness, we become more and more like God and a partaker, as Peter says, of his divine nature. And so Ed Welch says in the chapter, somehow through his spirit, we actually become partakers of the divine nature, which is very close. Progressive nearness makes this growth and change increasingly beautiful, satisfying, and attractive. And so it's not, don't think of obedience or being holy as God is holy. Don't think of it as just something we have to do. Think of it as a relationship in which we are drawn into. That the more that we obey God in love, in joy, out of the right motivation, and the more holy, like his character that we become, the closer to him we get. And the more we long to be with him in his presence. And so being holy is really a means of being near God, being with him in fellowship. And then in chapter 19, he gives us a picture of the priesthood that really speaks to our situation as redeemed children of God. He says, 
we are consecrated by God and made holy. So at the moment that God calls us unto himself and regenerates our hearts, we are set apart from the world and declared to be holy, consecrated. That's really a positional sanctification. And then we grow in holiness, which is a progressive experiential sanctification. But the problem is, is that even though we are declared holy and we are growing in holiness, we're still not there yet, are we? We still haven't arrived at a state of perfection. As Paul says in Philippians 3, he says, I press on, but I'm not saying I've already attained the goal. I'm not there yet. So even now, even though we've been declared holy and we're moving toward God in holiness in the image of Christ, still our sins and our imperfections remain with us. There's a sense in which experientially, at least, we're always dirty still. We still have the, the taint of our sinfulness because we've not been perfected, which raises the question, how do we serve as priests before a holy God if we are imperfect and dirty? Well, we have the example of Israel's priests, for one, because they too were imperfect, weren't they? So Israel's priests, Aaron and, and his line, they weren't perfect either. We see many, many examples of that in the Old Testament stories. So they weren't perfect, but they still served in God's house. How so? Well, they offered sacrifices for themselves. Just as Aaron offers a sacrifice for himself and his family on the Day of Atonement, then he goes in and offers an offering for the sake of the people. So he is imperfect, but he is cleansed, so then he can represent the rest of the people. So Israel's priests were imperfect, but they still served in God's house. So they were ceremonially cleansed, they were uh, atoned for, and they were declared officially clean and holy to minister in God's presence. He says, no priest ever rested in his own perfections. No priest in Israel thought he was perfect. He rested in God's mercy and the confidence that the one who invites less than clean people to live with him is the one who figures out how that will happen. So how can we as sinful people be priests of the living God in his presence? The only one that can make that happen is God who calls us in and draws us near. And so that's really pictured beautifully in where he spends the majority of this chapter in Zechariah chapter three with this vision. Zechariah three is an incredible chapter. Uh, I love going back to this passage in Zechariah three. And I don't know if you are very familiar with it or have read it very often. Sometimes these minor prophets can escape our attention sometimes. But this passage is, it's the gospel. It's the gospel just laid out for us in a beautiful picture. What you have is a courtroom scene and you have Joshua, the high priest. So this is a real person. This is a real man 
His name is Joshua. He is serving as the high priest after the exile. So this is after the people of Judah have been taken into exile in Babylon. Now Cyrus has arose and he has given permission for the people of Israel to go back and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And so you have Zerubbabel, who is kind of like the governor, political leader. But you have Joshua, who is the high priest, who is helping to reestablish worship in Jerusalem that is being rebuilt. And you have this vision that Zechariah sees of Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. This is God. Many times in the Old Testament, we see this specific designation, the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. It is God. Speaks as God, declares uh, things as God, has power as God. And so this is really a courtroom scene where Joshua is standing before the judge of the universe, God Almighty, and Satan is standing at his right side to accuse him. Just think of like a modern courtroom scene where you've got a judge on the bench and you've got people down here behind two tables. You've got a defendant and someone representing him and you've got a prosecutor, right? And the prosecutor is leveling charges. He's seeking to make a case to prove this person guilty. Satan is the prosecutor in this picture. Satan is the adversary. He's the accuser of the brethren. He is here in this vision accusing Joshua of being unfit for service as God's priest. So Satan is there accusing him, seeking to prosecute him. But notice the Lord. The Lord says to Satan, essentially, you're overruled. Your, your argument has no validity whatsoever. Your argument is out of bounds. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? And the image there is of a, a, a stick that's still a little bit on fire, still smoldering with some smoke coming from it. It, it was about to be consumed in the fire, snatched out and rescued by God. That's the picture of Joshua, but also really the picture of all of Israel in that they were in the furnace of Babylonian captivity of judgment and God snatches them out and rescues them and brings them back home. Joshua is a, has been delivered by God's grace. And so God says, Satan prosecutor, you're overruled. I rebuke you. Now, Joshua was, was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. Imagine a courtroom scene in which the district attorney, the prosecutor, is trying to accuse someone of murder and the murderer is standing there at the, the defense table holding the bloody murder weapon. That wouldn't be very hard of a case to, to prove, would it? to convict. The evidence is right there. He's still holding. He's still got blood on his hands. That's the picture here. Satan is there accusing him. This man is guilty. He is polluted. He is filthy. He doesn't deserve to serve as your priest. He still has the taint 
of Israel's sin and wickedness. He still has the guilt of the punishment in Babylon. This man doesn't deserve this role. He doesn't deserve to serve you. Look at him. Just just look at the evidence. He's standing there in filthy, putrid clothes. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. And he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. And God says, what dirty clothes? They're gone. And now you've been reclothed in fine, white, clean garments. And it's really a a beautiful picture of what God did for Adam and Eve in the garden, didn't he? Here's Adam and Eve. They're standing there guilty. You've eaten of the tree, haven't you? You're, You're standing there in fig leaves. Who told you you were naked? They were guilty. It was all over them. God says, I'm going to take that off of you, which symbolizes your shame and guilt, and I'm going to clothe you through sacrifice. This is what God does for for Joshua here. So God cleanses him, removes his sin, clothes him in righteousness. He says in the chapter, the judge reveals that he is not only a judge, he is also the advocate who comes to our defense. Even more, He is our advocate, defender, sacrifice, beautifier, who will take upon himself the burden of qualifying his people to be with him. It's hard for us to imagine this scene, but imagine the judge getting off of the bench, coming down and standing next to the accused and saying, I'm defending him. I'm defending him and I'm the judge. That's essentially what we have in Christ, isn't it? Paul says in Romans 8, who is he that condemns? Who's the judge at the end of the day? Jesus, right? Jesus, in Matthew 25, Jesus is going to stand there with the sheep and the goats, and he's going to say to some, go go into everlasting life. He's going to say to others on the left, go to everlasting judgment. In John, he says, the father has appointed me to serve as the judge. Romans 8, who is he that condemns? It's Christ. Christ is the one who will condemn on the last day, but he can't do that for us. Why? Because he's the one who already died for us. So yes, he is the judge, but for us, he's our defender. He's our advocate. And so he's the one who has come to our defense and qualified us to be with him. And so all eyes are on Jesus. He does all of this himself. We witness his work for his namesake, not because of our inherent worth or capacity. He forgives and cleanses us. Zechariah 3, 4 is really a picture of what Christ does for us on the cross. Take off the filthy clothes, put on the white raiment of righteousness. And then in Zechariah 3, 5, Zechariah sees this scene And Zechariah, it's really kind of an unusual thing in a vision. Zechariah, the one who's receiving the vision, inserts himself into the vision and says, now put a clean turban on his head. 
he sees this scene. It's almost like he's overwhelmed by it. And he says out in the vision to God, he's been cleansed, put white raiment on. Now finish it and put a white turban on his head. What kind of a turban? Probably a priestly turban. Because that's his role to serve as high priest. Satan says he can't do it because he's filthy. God says, I've cleansed him. Zachariah says, you've cleansed him, finish it and put a turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by, apparently in approval that he has been cleansed and, in, and made whole for this role. And then he says, here's what the turban said, according to Exodus 28, 36. Aaron, who wore the high priest's headgear, the turban, here's what it said. God said to Moses, make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it as a seal, holy to the Lord. That's what the turban said on it for the high priest. And so God says to Satan, you're overruled. I've cleansed him. I've taken off his filthy garments. I've put righteous garments on him. And now I'm declaring him he's holy. He's holy to the Lord. He says in this vision, the character of the Lord is on fuller display. He is not torn between loving people and consuming them in his anger. Instead, he has determined that we be with him. And he is always inclined to wash and forgive those who turn to him. Following Zechariah's lead, we are emboldened to come near. God's not torn. I love that. He's not torn about what to do with us. He has already set his love on us. He has determined to love us and to redeem us and to draw us near. In Christ, he is for us. So he says, yet we are witnessing something even deeper. This beautifying means that we begin to look more and more like God himself as we are being refashioned into his image. Communion is best when we share a likeness. We are becoming truly human, remade in the image of our father and creator. So God, the question then is, how can we as sinful people stand in the presence of God and minister as his priests? It's because God has made us holy. He's done so of his own accord through Christ. He has made us worthy to serve him in this way. And then chapter 20 is really kind of drawing all of this history of Israel kind of to a, a close, going all the way back to Abraham and Jacob and Moses and Aaron. And he's walked us through this, these priestly stories and images in the Old Testament in Israel. And chapter 20 kind of draws that to a close and really talks about this as kind of a tumultuous up and down period in Israel's history. He says the fortunes of the priests and the temple were bound together. So as one went, so went the other. In other words, if the priests were wicked, that had implications for the temple. As one went, so went the other. And so going back to the time of Moses, you know, we've, we've got Moses there and things were good in terms of serving the Lord in the tabernacle. They were good when Moses was there. They were probably still pretty good when Joshua was there. But imagine what happened to the tabernacle and the priesthood 
after Joshua. What comes after Joshua in your Bibles? Judges, right? What do we know about the time of the judges? Everybody did whatever they wanted to do, right? Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king. There was essentially no law. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And a, a really depressing story of the priesthood comes to us from Judges in which uh, there is, toward the end of the book, basically people just hiring priests for themselves, just buying them. I'll hire you out as my own personal priest. Some guy finds out this guy's a Levite of the tribe of Levi, the, the priestly tribe, and he says, here, let me hire you as my own personal priest. So there's no dedication to the tabernacle. There's no dedication to the law of the Lord. The priests are just uh, basically mercenaries, merchants for hire in the book of Judges. So it's a dark period. You have the beginnings of Samuel, the prophet, first and second Samuel, and you have the ark of God falling into the hands of the Philistines. So again, not a good period in terms of the tabernacle and the priesthood of Israel's history. But then you have it kind of rise again with the days of David and David bringing the tabernacle, uh, bringing the Ark of the Covenant home, setting it up in Jerusalem, establishing worship there, seeking to uh, build a house for God in Jerusalem. But God's saying, you're not going to do it. I'm going to let your son Solomon do it. But David gathered all the materials. David helped prepare the way for this temple to be built. And then Solomon builds the temple and it's glorious. It's a beautiful structure. And he prays in first Kings chapter eight and dedicates it to God. But really the problems start even then. We start to go down again in terms of the story of the temple and the priesthood really kind of begins with the time of Solomon. Some of the things he points out about the reign of Solomon and his role in the building of the temple is one, he spent more time and expense on his own house than he did on the Lord's. Solomon's palace was bigger than the temple, more elaborate. Solomon had a foreigner oversee the work and this foreigner was paid with Israelite cities. So not like Moses commissioning Aholiab to oversee the tabernacle and make sure it was all constructed according to the Lord's plan. Solomon hires a foreigner to do it. Solomon uses forced labor. He forces Hebrews into labor, which sounds an awful lot like the Egyptian overlords that they escaped in Exodus. Solomon took liberties with furniture dimensions and materials, which kind of leaned in the direction of the pagan temples of that day. And we know that Solomon the Bible tells us that Solomon's heart started to lean toward idols and turning away from God because of all the wives that he married and got himself intertwined with all these political arrangements and also corrupted his heart away from the living God. He says, if you look closely, the story tends toward entropy. God's presence is less intense, less concentrated, the glory and presence of the Lord rested on the new temple, but idol worship tacitly approved by Solomon was followed by civil war and a divided kingdom. So really the story of the temple and the priesthood 
started taking a nosedive during and after the days of Solomon. And so throughout Israel's history, you see a propensity for idolatry, worshiping false gods. You see among the priests and the leaders of Israel, a tolerance of corruption and injustice. If you read the prophetic books like Isaiah and including the, the smaller books, the 12 minor prophets, you will see many times where the priests are specifically called out for their lack of leadership and their failure to provide a good example and teaching for the people of Israel. You see uh, all of this lead to the eventual destruction of the temple by the Babylonians in 586 BC. And so essentially in 586, the priesthood and the temple are done. This beautiful thing that God had created for his people to draw near to him, it was destroyed. And the people go into Babylon. So when the Babylonians entered the most holy place, it says there was no cloud of the presence and the presence of God would not inhabit the Jerusalem temple again. Long before the Babylonians got there, he says God's presence had already left because of their wickedness. And then as the story moves forward after the exile, the people are given permission to go back and rebuild the temple by Cyrus. You have some initial success. You can read about in uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. You see some initial success with the rebuilding of the temple, but then they start to face opposition from some of the Samaritans and, and some of their neighbors around them. And it puts everything on hold. And then eventually you have some apathy, some selfishness set in, which left this temple unfinished for 10 years. To which, into which situation you have the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. And they come in and say, what are you doing? You're, you're worried about your own houses. What about the house of God? And so he calls them out for their apathy and their selfishness. So Haggai and Zechariah moved the people to finish the temple. Uh, but even still then, it never reached the heights that it had when under David and Solomon. This temple that was rebuilt in Jerusalem was not nearly as beautiful or as glorious as the original temple that Solomon had built. And from that point forward, really starting with Babylon and then Greece and Rome, uh, you've got um, a long line of succession of foreign powers who are basically trading Jerusalem back and forth among them. So Jerusalem, including the temple, was basically fought over by empires to the north and the south. So if you can imagine, think in your mind of where Israel is, it's right there on the, the Mediterranean Sea. To the north, you've got like Syria, Assyria, Babylon, Iraq, Iran, modern day. Below it, you've got like Egypt, who's always been a major power. And basically along the major highway connecting those north and south was Jerusalem. And so it got traded back and forth between whoever was stronger at that given time, the power in the north or the power in the south. And so they were always fought over. It was a tumultuous time in their history. You have a really, really dark time in the 160s BC where Antiochus Epiphanes, 
who is one of the descendants of, or in the line, monarchy, of the four generals that took over after Alexander the Great died. So after Alexander the Great died, he divided his kingdom up into four uh, sections, four areas. And out of one of those areas to the north, like Syria, this line came up that was particularly hostile toward Israel. And the worst of those was Antiochus Epiphanes. And the things that he did to Jerusalem are unspeakable. He, he borders on an ancient Hitler, Antiochus Epiphanes. He murdered, slaughtered people in Jerusalem. He uh, totally um, blasphemed the temple and um, introduced foreign gods into the temple, offered a pig on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. How, how blasphemous that would be to the Jews. He, he was, uh, he was, he hated the Jews and he mercilessly oppressed them and contaminated and defiled the temple. And then you had um, a group of really soldiers uh, under Judah Maccabee, sometimes referred to as Judas Maccabeus. Under him, they recaptured Jerusalem for the Hebrews and they reconsecrated the temple in 164 BC. This, is, this event is still remembered at the time of Hanukkah by the Jews. This is probably an event that is referred to in the book of Daniel as the abomination that causes desolation in Daniel chapter 12. This man Antiochus Epiphanes is referred to in the book of Daniel. But then you still, even throughout this time, you have Greek and Roman influence in Jerusalem. The priesthood is essentially polluted into a political office and totally messes up its original purpose. And out of this kind of tumultuous history, you have Herod the Great who arose. Herod the Great was the one who was in charge at the time of Jesus. He was a master builder. He beautified and expanded the temple. And so he did a lot of work on the temple, seeking to restore it to some of its Solomonic beauty and grandeur. And so you had priests and Levites rotating through the temple, doing their duties. We even read about that in the opening chapters of Luke, where you have Zachariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah was a priest and he was by lot serving in the temple. So you had the priests and the, and the Levites doing their jobs in the temple. Yet he says within the temple, there was spiritual decay and the most holy place was empty, meaning God's presence really had never come back there the way that it was. And Herod the Great was also the one who ordered the death of infant sons selfishly to protect his throne when he heard about the birth of Jesus, the coming Messiah. So uh, Herod the Great, definitely not a role model. He, he did a lot of work for the building of the temple, but in terms of the actual worship of the temple and the righteousness of God's people was not a good leader. And all of that kind of sets up for the New Testament period in which certain things happened that kind of 
prepare the way for Jesus in the New Testament. One of those is the appearance of synagogues. Synagogues really came about during the time of the Babylonian captivity, we think, because there was no central temple during that time of the Babylonian captivity. And so synagogues are essentially local gatherings, local congregations where people would come and read the word of God and hear the word of God. It's really kind of the closest analogy of what the church is, the New Testament church. It is a local gathering of God's followers to listen to the word of God being taught. And so that's where the synagogues first appeared. And so then when we read the New Testament about Jesus going into the synagogues, that's what those are. Those are local places where people gather to read the word and to worship. But really throughout this whole time, the priests were unreliable as spiritual leaders. You had a few who were good, but really a a large number of the priests were influenced by Greek influence, by Roman influence. Some of them turned it into more of a, a political position. Some of them used it as a opportunity to gain wealth and status and position. So it was really kind of a mixed time. Many of them were more interested in maintaining Jewish identity than discerning sin and being a light to the world. So all of that is what Jesus came into. He came into really a broken priesthood, a temple that wasn't functioning the way it was supposed to be functioning. And you can see that clearly on display when Jesus comes into the temple courtyards and sees basically a market going on there where people are buying and exchanging money and selling, making a profit and basically turned it into a, a, you know, an ancient market instead of a place for the worship of God and of prayer. And so the priesthood and the temple were not what they should have been when Jesus arrived. And he closes the chapter with this, and really this whole section about Israel. He says, in all this, though, there was reason for hope, because the Lord still made appearances in his sanctuary. And he references Luke one eleven, where God came through an angel to Zechariah while he was serving as a priest. He was never completely dependent on the presence of the ark. God can come and go where he wants to go right? He doesn't have to have an ark there. And he says, if we notice anything in this history, we see that the Lord is accustomed to entering into very messy situations in which he is uninvited, but still faithful to his promises. That's the scene in which Jesus enters. It's a messy situation, isn't it? Which gives us hope because Jesus came into a messy situation where Herod the Great was the ruler, and Herod said, no, I don't want anybody taking my place. Let's just kill all the boys. And the priesthood was corrupted. The temple was being used as a marketplace. It was a messy time, a messy situation. But so are our lives, aren't they? Our lives are, are messy. And when Jesus calls sinners by his grace, he comes into a messy situation. And he saves them and he makes them holy. Not only does he save them and make them clean, he makes them holy. 
and he makes them priests of the living God. And now as Peter says, we are a royal priesthood through Christ. And so as we move then to the last section of the book, we're going to move into the New Testament and what Jesus came to do in terms of showing us what this priesthood story was really ultimately moving toward. And that is that we now in Christ would be a holy priesthood, serving God and representing him to the world, drawing near to him. And so I hope that uh, this, this story from Genesis to Revelation of the priesthood helps us see uh, what God is doing for us and drawing us near to him and making us his holy priests. Let's bow in prayer together. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had tonight to think about um, your grace in making dirty sinners clean and whole and in drawing them in to your plan of redemption. Father, thank you for what you have done for us in Christ. We thank you that because of your grace, we can be called your priests and we can draw near to you in holiness, Father. Thank you, Lord, for setting us apart as your special possession, as your holy people. Now, Lord, may we continue to draw near to you through obedience and through becoming holy as you yourself are holy. God bless your church. Bless us, Father, as we seek to walk in your ways. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.